Amen. Go ahead and stand up wherever you are and find a partner, okay? If you, if you can't stand, that's okay, you can sit. But just face a partner, go and do it. I'm the pastor and you need to do what I say, okay? Find, find a partner, look them in the face. If you can't find a partner, that's okay. You need to observe the people that do have a partner and you need to do what I tell you. I want you to close your eyes, no talking. Close your eyes right now, just close your eyes and do not open them until I tell you. You got that? You can't open your eyes until I tell you. And now, as a symbol of your faith and your Christian love with this brother or sister in the Lord, I want you to give them a high five at the count of three. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Okay, don't open your eyes, okay? Okay, now, listen, listen. If you failed, okay, if you failed at giving them a high five, no opening your eyes, Jen, your eyes are open. And you're a wife of a board member. Okay, keep your eyes closed. If you failed, I want you to try harder at the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, if you didn't work, try harder! Try harder! Harder! All right, now, now you can open your eyes, open your eyes. If you did that correctly, there was probably some wounding going on, some. But now with your eyes open, just give them a high five. Give them a high five. All right, okay, now you can sit down. Okay, this is what I observe, okay? Uh, and this is my point. I mean, maybe our faith isn't really about trying harder, but about seeing better. Does that make sense? Okay, and uh, maybe love is not simply about trying harder, but seeing better. And in fact, if we don't see better and simply try harder, we actually just hate better. Um, and that explains an awful lot of church fights, huh? A lot of people um, trying really hard to love but, but not seeing. So uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the way you see. Help us to know the way you know. Open the eyes of our hearts, Father. And maybe you could even use this sermon through the power of your spirit to help in that process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. February 3rd, 1969, Al and his family boarded Eastern Airlines flight number seven in Newark, New Jersey on the way to Miami, Florida. About an hour into the flight, Al heard murmuring behind him. It was uh, subdued and yet uh, intense, as if the passengers behind him had discovered something sinister. A moment later, a flight attendant walked cautiously past him, making her way toward the cockpit. Immediately behind this flight attendant was a man holding a seven-inch knife against her neck. Al and his wife were stunned. They could feel the terror, the hushed anxiety uh, within the plane among those passengers. Soon, Al heard the captain's voice over the intercom and said this, there is a man on board who wants to fly to Havana, Cuba. We had better go his way. Don't worry, everything is okay. But everything was obviously not okay. As Al quietly reassured his family, squeezed his wife's Trembling hands, silence and fear like a blanket of death fell across those passengers on Eastern Airlines flight number seven. And then something happened that Al and his family did not expect, completely did, did not expect. A, a man 
near them began to snicker and then laugh. And then another person began to laugh and another until one by one, all 90-some passengers, except for Al and his family, were just laughing, laughing hysterically and talking. I mean, it became uh, like, a, like a party on the plane. The laughter was so loud and so hilarious that the hijacker leaned out of the cockpit to see what was going on. When he did, the whole plane broke into applause and the laughter grew even louder. The hijacker was already confused by American culture, and so he began to yell, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Why are you the louder he yelled, the more they laughed and the more they applauded. Al begged a priest, because Al was scared. Al begged a priest to calm the people down. And the priest just laughed at Al. The plane was a party. The hijacker was terrified. The passengers laughed all the way to Havana and all the way back to Miami. The, the passengers, you see, saw something that I don't think the hijacker could see. The passengers knew something that the hijacker did not know. Someone had recognized Al. And you see, in 1968, Al was an American icon. Someone had seen Al and informed the others of his presence. Al's full name was Alan Funt, the host of Candid Camera. Smile, you're on Candid Camera. And so they all smiled. And they all, they all laughed because they figured Al was in charge and the whole thing was his show. And that's the way it is when you know something that the others don't know. But ironically, Al knew something those passengers didn't know. He knew that what they thought they knew, they didn't know. You know, it really was a hijacker. <laughs> I love that story. I find, it, I find it fascinating because everyone on the plane encountered the same set of circumstances, right? Same things, same people, same situation, and yet each had a radically different experience dependent on what they knew or what they thought they knew. Imagine yourself in a Roman prison cell. In the city of Philippi, province of Macedonia, the Roman Empire, long about 50 AD, people are beaten, people are chained in stalks, some of them awaiting death, everyone terrified, except for these two guys. Blood runs down their back just like it runs down your back. Their legs are in irons like your legs are in irons, but they're singing. <laughs> They're singing, they're even laughing, they're rejoicing. Their names are Paul and Silas. And surely you'd think to yourself, they, they must know something I don't know. They see something that I just don't see. Imagine yourself in a prison cell in Rome and this fellow's writing letters stating things like this. This has turned out for my deliverance, for our advantage. Rejoice in the Lord always and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, you would think that guy was mentally ill, right? Or maybe if you got to know him a bit, you began to ask yourself this question. Well, maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe he sees something, sees someone that I can't see. Maybe he sees like with the eyes of his heart. 
You know, we've spent five weeks looking at the second sentence of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, most likely written from a prison cell in Rome. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, as you know, is one long sentence that, that just tells us the way things are. No practical application points. <laughs> Nothing to do. Later, Paul's gonna talk about things to do, but only after he tells us the way things are. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He goes on to say he unites all things in him, accomplishes all things, all things he accomplishes, works according to the counsel of his will. And then in the third sentence, almost as long as the second sentence, he prays for the church and we're the church. Not that we'd try harder. Not that we would be more responsible. Not that we would be more disciplined, but that we'd see something and know something. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus or through the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then this is the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, or even better, can be translated the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, that you may see, that you may know. But you see, we don't always like to see. We don't always like to know. Sometimes ignorance is, is bliss because we like the illusion that we are in control. Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Well, as I hope you know, Neo Anderson, which means new son of man, takes the red pill. And when he, be, when he does, he, he begins to see. He, he begins to see that the whole world is in bondage to a lie. 
told by malevolent forces that feed off of human energy. But when Neo sees the truth with the eyes of his heart, in other words, when he begins to trust the truth, or biblically, when he begins to have faith, evil loses its power, and he's no longer enslaved to the matrix, the matrix of this world. Well, you see, St. Paul, I think he has a red pill for us to swallow as, as well. And it takes us even deeper into the rabbit hole, even deeper into Wonderland. In Ephesians, he'll reveal that the whole world really is in bondage to a lie told by malevolent forces. And yet the malevolent forces, the principalities and powers, as he calls them, have already been defeated by the creator through the son of man who is the truth. In other words, a terrorist really has hijacked this world and he's flying it straight to hell. But someone else is on the plane, and he is far more powerful than even Alan Flint. <laughs> if you see him, your circumstances may stay the same. In fact, according to worldly standards, they may get even worse. And yet your experience of this trip will be radically altered. He wants you to see him. And he has made himself your red pill. His spirit is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And so Paul prays, may he give you the spirit of wisdom. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us or toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also and the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. So Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we'd know these uh, three things. First, the hope to which he has called us. Hope. I don't know about you, but I find hope to be incredibly painful. I mean, I, I want to see my hopes fulfilled, or I want God to take my hopes away. I mean, I even prayed that. I, I, God, just would you, would you do this or would you take it away? I want my hopes fulfilled or I want him to take them away. In other words, I, I, I get exhausted with hope. And I'm tempted, tempted to give up hope. Paul wrote this, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I have a wonderful friend that went through a painful divorce and was tempted to give up hope. Years ago, I remember she told me, Peter, I was sitting in church, we were singing this song, and I prayed this prayer that I thought was a very noble prayer. I prayed, God, I'm willing to feel unloved. And she said, I heard God. I heard God say to me, don't you dare. 
don't you dare. I thought about it a lot because I think God says that to me. Don't you dare give up hope. You see, to stop hoping for the good is to consign yourself to hell. And yet, to live in hell and hope for heaven hurts, really hurts. So I think we turn hope into this nebulous, ethereal thing like nothing and call it hoping in God. And don't get me wrong, hoping in God is good, and yet God is not nothing. We are to hope in God, and yet we just read that God will unite all things in Christ, fill all things with himself. So Ephesians 5.20, listen to this. We're to give thanks always and for all things, writes Paul. Remember what Jesus said? He said, God alone is good. And so think about this. God must be the good in all things. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve had all good things, except knowledge of the good in all things. In other words, they had all good things except faith in God who is the good. Well, knowledge of the good, that's that fruit hanging on the tree in the middle of the garden. I mean, knowledge of the good is good, right? God made it. Knowledge of the good is good, but taking it in the wrong way is evil. So you see, sin is taking the good in the wrong way, taking things, taking people, taking control in the wrong way. So in Romans 5, 5, Paul writes, writes this, hope will not disappoint us. We've thought about that so many times. Hope will not, I mean, he doesn't say certain hopes will not disappoint us. But he says hope will not disappoint us. Almost like any hope will not disappoint us. See, maybe it's impossible to hope for anything but the good. However, we can fail to wait for the good, which is then not hope. And so rather than hoping for the good, we we seize the good and crucify the good and then give up on hope give up on the good, which is the very definition of evil, but give up on the, give up on the good, give up on hope, but, but check this out. I, I don't think hope gives up on us. The good doesn't give up on us. Paul wrote this, love hopes all things. Well, I'm just saying, okay, if you didn't follow that, I'm just saying this, follow this. Maybe there's nothing that we can hope for that will ultimately disappoint us. But if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. And that's faith. That's the eyes of our heart uh, enlightened to this astounding fact that in Paul's words, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, you can read it, uh, Paul writes, All things are yours. (laughs) All things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So stop arguing with each other about stuff. Stop bragging about who baptized you. All things are yours. So anyway, if if you're tempted to sexual sins, I think you need to know that masculinity is yours. Christ is yours. The groom is yours. 
And femininity is yours. The bride is yours. You will not be disappointed with the intimate communion of the kingdom of God. If you're tempted with drugs and alcohol, you need to know this. The wine of the kingdom is yours. And you will not be disappointed with the wine in the kingdom. If you're tempted with covetousness and greed, all things are yours. And you will walk on streets of gold. And even now, they're yours somehow. I read about a little boy visiting the Washington Monument with his parents. He walked up to this security guard and he said, I'd like to buy it. <laughs> and the security guard looked down and said, well, buddy, how much do you got? So he dug in his pocket, pulled out some change. They counted it, 34 cents. And the security guard looked down at the little boy and he said, buddy, you need to understand three things. Number one, 34 cents is not enough money to buy the Washington Monument. Number two, the Washington Monument is not for sale. And number three, if you're an American citizen, it's already yours. St. Paul writes to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and he says, all things are yours. It's all yours. Even now, in some amazing way, they're, they're yours, but what turns them into sin is the way you take them in hopelessness, faithlessness, lovelessness, possessiveness, insecurity, and fear. But if the eyes of your heart were opened, maybe you wouldn't be addicted to things, attached to things, but you'd thank God in all things because he is the good in, in all things. And maybe you'd know the good without crucifying the good, and God is uh, the good. And maybe you'd know the glory without trying to possess the glory, and then you'd just receive the glory as grace. And the glory is grace. Maybe if you hoped for the good in all things, you wouldn't be addicted to anything. And you'd thank God for everything. So try that, thanking God for everything and see if it changes your addictions. Well, in Colossians 1.27, Paul refers to, quote, Christ in you as the hope of glory. So Christ in you is hope in you. So don't give up on hope. Hope is Christ in you, Christ in you, hoping in you for the good. And God, his Father, is the good in all things. Romans 8, 31, Paul writes this. He who did not spare his own son, think about this, he who did not spare his own son, uh, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? You see, in this world, God is showing you his heart. That is Jesus from the bosom of the Father, the heart of God. And once we see our Father's heart, once we see the good, we can receive all things as good. So hope and hope will not disappoint you. So Paul prays this. Number one, may you know the hope to which he has called you. And number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now Paul's not talking about our inheritance, is he? He's talking about God's inheritance. And what is God's glorious inheritance? Yeah, Jolene got it right. Us, the saints. You are the saints. You're the, you're the holy ones. You are his glorious inheritance. The people in this room who get filled with this glory, which is grace. 
Well, God the Father reminds me of Dad, my father. He was always trying to get me to see his glory in my sisters. <laughs> I mean, and it was almost like a wound in my dad that he carried with him. I remember him saying stuff like this to me. Peter, I want you to see Rachel and Lydia the way I see Rachel and Lydia, the way I see you. If you could see them the way I see them, well, I think you'd really love them. We see the problem with Rachel and Lydia was that Rachel and Lydia would not do what I told them to do when I told them to do it. And so I had to just let them be. I had to just forgive them if I was to enjoy them or, or see them. Do you realize that the people in this room, go ahead and look around, just look at them. Do you realize that they are God's glorious inheritance, his sanctuary, filled and to be filled with his glory. When I try to seize control of them, when I can't forgive them, they feel like hell. But when I let them be, they're a party. And I begin to see the glory. And God's glory is grace. Maybe if I saw that I am God's glorious inheritance and they are God's glorious inheritance, I wouldn't be so desperate to make them my glorious inheritance. I mean, I wouldn't be attached to them in fear. I wouldn't be addicted to them or their approval. I wouldn't need them to be my savior and I wouldn't need to be their savior. Their uh, creator, their redeemer, their master, they are God's glorious inheritance, and yet they become my glorious inheritance through grace. Do you remember what Paul wrote to Philemon when his uh, slave Onesimus ran away? It's in the book of Philemon. Great book to memorize because it's the shortest like, book in the Bible, one, one page long. But, but he wrote this to Onesimus about his runaway slave. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but a beloved brother, a beloved sister. And maybe that's why someone was parted from you for a while that you might have them back forever, no longer as a codependent emotional slave to you, but a brother, a sister, free. No longer as a trophy, but a bride. No longer as a servant to your ego, but a, but a son, a, a daughter, full of glory. No longer as an object in the kingdom of yourself, but the glorious inheritance of the living God called his sanctuary, his sanctuary in the kingdom of God. He's in them. He's in you. He is love. And we are, you see, a great banquet about to happen. We are a party about to happen if only the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. So Paul prays for the spirit of revelation to open the eyes of our hearts so we would know, number one, the hope to which he has called us, two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and number three, the immeasurable greatness of his power in us and toward us who believe. Hyperballon megathos dunameos. Hyper mega dynamite power. That's what he's praying about. God is sovereign, you know. He's sovereign over all things. 
over all people, over all situations. One, two, three. God's power is all around us. God's power is in us as faith. Faith in us is Christ in us, the Son of Man rising in us. In, in the Matrix, when Neo Anderson believes the principalities and, and powers cannot stop him. He becomes like this. If you've seen the movie, you know. He becomes like this apocalyptic badass kickboxer. You know what I mean? Is that, I'm sorry if that, if, but, but anyway, that's what he, be, he, he becomes like, like that. And, and in the spiritual realm, you see, that's what we are. I've seen it. That's really what we are. I know that demons are far more terrified of the power in you than you could ever be of them. You have mega dynamite power within you and around you. But you see, it's not just mega dynamite power. Paul goes on to say the power, the, the great might that worked in Christ, when, when, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So, so think about this. Christ is the ultimate mega dynamite apocalyptic kickboxer, right? And yet he emptied himself and became a slave, a, a servant, he emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death, and death on a cross. I mean, in the Roman Empire, you can't get any lower than that. And God, God, he was dead. He couldn't do it himself. God highly exalted him. Not John Rambo. And not even Billy Graham. Not Ronald Reagan. Not Albert Einstein. God exalted him the most humble, the most emptied of all men that have ever lived, Jesus, the slaughtered lamb. And you see, because God is all-powerful and God exalted him, I don't need to exalt myself. I don't need to promote myself. I can be no longer addicted to myself. When the eyes of my heart are enlightened, I'm no longer addicted to things, but can hope all things. I'm no longer addicted to people, but can love all people. I'm no longer addicted to myself, but can sacrifice myself, my control. And I think that's called faith. And then I'm free. Faith, hope, and love in me is Jesus in me, and he's free. So when you know that the world, what the world does not know, you're free from the world, not addicted to the world, and so you can love the world as God so loved the world. All things, all people, in all situations. God so loved the world with Jesus. Faith, hope, and love in me is Jesus rising within me, and I am his body in this world. Verse 22, God has put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So that slaughtered lamb, you see, is the boss of all things for the church which is us and that means that at any moment the best possible thing that could happen to me is happening to me and when I see that with the eyes of my heart 
Well, I really do become like Neo Anderson, apocalyptic badass kickboxer in the heavenly places. But in the world of men, the world we see with our human eyes, the, the world that we live in, once the eyes of your, your heart are enlightened, I suspect that you'll look, at least to people, you'll look more like this, like a, a holy fool on a mission from God. Well, as you know, Jake and Elwood Blues were, were orphans, and they feel called to save their former orphanage from bankruptcy, but they don't know how. At the Triple Rock Church, which you saw there, uh, they receive a revelation. The band, put the band back together, raise $5,000 and save the orphanage, even though all odds are against them. Even though a band of rednecks is chasing them, along with the state police, the National Guard, and the Illinois chapter of the Nazis, <laughs> even though the whole world is set against them, they, they know that they cannot fail because they're on a mission from God. And here is your receipt. So they don't fail, they save the orphanage. They don't fail, but they do suffer. However, with the eyes of their hearts enlightened, the party never stops. The singing, 
never stops. Like Paul in prison in Philippi, singing hymns and rejoicing along with Silas. All before the jailhouse began to rock, you remember? And the quaking earth blew the doors open and the gospel spread from Asia Minor into Europe. Like Paul in prison in Rome, writing to the Ephesians, uh, the surrounding churches. You know, Ephesians, they think, was probably a circular letter written to Ephesus and the churches immediately around Ephesus, they, they would circulate uh, among the churches. It's like Paul, uh, they're like Paul in prison in Rome, writing, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're on a mission from God. And I don't cease to remember you in my prayers that the Father of Jesus, Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Revelation, apocalypseos, apocalypseos, apocalypse, literally, apocalypse, I'm praying for an apocalypse in the knowledge of him. See, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 is a prayer for a revelation, an apocalypse. And the book that we call The Revelation is at least partly, and I think in this amazing way, an answer to Paul's prayer. It's titled The Revelation of Jesus. That's the first the book Revelation of Jesus, literally Apocalypse of Jesus, Apocalypse in the knowledge of him. We could easily preach a year on Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, because once I did preach a year on the Revelation, which is an answer to the prayer, wrote a book on the Revelation. The Revelation we received on the prison island of Patmos by John about 40 years before, or 40 years after um, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Uh, John received it and then sent the Revelation to Ephesus and the six surrounding churches, the seven churches, probably the same churches to whom Paul had written 40 years before. The second and third chapters of the Revelation are addressed to the angel or the spirit in each church, describing what needs to be done. It's the angel or the spirit that needs to do it. But the vision, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the quote, revelation is for the people in those churches and for us because it describes what needs to be seen. What needs to be seen. That is the hope to which he has called us. The uh, immeasurable greatness, or the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. You know, the revelation is not this little map to the end times. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus, the Lord of all time. It describes principalities and powers, describes the dragon, the beast, the great harlots with whom, with whom we all battle, describes the kings of the earth, empires of the earth, and how they are all conquered by a slaughtered lamb and those who are, quote, with him. People like those seemingly foolish believers in those seven little churches, people like you. And did you realize that the whole thing is a musical? They never stop singing. The whole thing is a musical, like the Blues Brothers. And in the end, there is a party, the wedding supper of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, the new earth, where we know the good, have the good, and the good has us. God is the good, and we are his inheritance. And that's the end. But not just the end. In 90 AD, John wrote, I see, present tense, I see the new Jerusalem coming down. In 30 AD, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is 
at hand. Maybe, maybe it's always at hand. If only the eyes of our hearts could, could see it. I mean, maybe the Garden of Eden is always at hand, but until we see the glory of God crucified on the tree, until we see that the heart of our Father is good, until we have faith in the good, we cannot enjoy the good and join his party. This week at staff, Angie Dancer, who Angie's in the service this morning too, she's usually down with the kids. This, uh, she's our children's minister. This week at, at staff, she said, hey Peter, this kind of sounds like the story of the prodigal son. You remember that in that story that Jesus told, this, uh, uh, the youngest of two sons, he comes to his father and asks for his share of the inheritance that falls to him. In that culture, to request uh, such a thing was to say, dad, I want your stuff and I wish you were dead. Miraculously, the father grants his wish. He takes the stuff and goes to this far country where he squanders his inheritance on loose living. Destitute, he decides to return as an employee so he can earn his father's stuff. In other words, he doesn't want his father, he wants his stuff. The father meets him on the road, showers him with grace, which melts the boy's heart. It opens the eyes of his heart. He sees his father's heart and he longs to be a son. So the father throws this party, this lavish, party saying uh, this is my son was lost but is now found the older brother gets angry at his father and his grace towards his younger brother and so he leaves the party goes out into a field where he sits alone and pouts in the darkness it's his own far country the father finds him and this is what he says to him son all that is mine is yours and we're left wondering if that self-righteous older brother will ever join the party. And this was Angie's observation. The party was there all along for both brothers. All that is mine is yours. All things, all people, all space and time. The party was there all along, but the eyes of their hearts were just not open. All things had always been there. What these boys did not see was that the heart of their father had always been there for them. He was their inheritance. And they were his inheritance. And they were each other's inheritance the kingdom was at hand the party was just waiting to happen waiting for a revelation and our father in heaven is even sovereign over the revelation actually he uses the far land of the prodigal he uses the dark field of that arrogant older brother he uses this fallen world to reveal his heart he uses our sin to reveal his grace you see our inheritance is all things all people all space and time filled with grace and god is grace it's an economy of grace. And it begins right here, right now. For he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Take, eat, and drink. 
And so he calls you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread. We ask you to come forward, uh, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake. But I warn you, this is the red pill. (laughs) I mean, it destroys your illusions. It's judgment, in other words. It destroys your illusions and sets you free. And so, yes, a terrorist is flying the plane. This is a very painful world full of incredible suffering. Yes, a terrorist is flying the plane. But Jesus is now on the plane. He actually has always been on the plane. And his father controls all things. And he will reveal his glory. So it's going to get great. It's going to be pretty exciting. He will reveal his glory. But even now, he wants you to join his party. Let's pray. Father, um, I realize that I'm preaching on a prayer. And so, Lord, what I'm preaching about, I cannot do. A mere sermon cannot do it. Bread from Safeway and wine from Tipsies cannot do it. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to do it. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we agree with the prayer of Paul. We agree with it for us, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would um, give yourself to us, that you would come to us, that, Father, you would give us the spirit of, of Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened and we would know the hope to which you have called us. The riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power in us who believe according to the working of your great might with which you raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and name uh, that is named and made him head over, uh, over the church, over all things uh, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. How great is our God. He's so great that if you would see him without a deep knowledge of his mercy and his love, 
you would be destroyed on the spot. With the knowledge of the fact that he is in absolute control. And you're not. That's how great he is. And so this is what I would suggest to you. That um, you would go back and look at Ephesians, maybe tonight, later in the week, and, and look at the verses we spent you know, a whole lot of time on, uh, the, the one sentence, and then we went to the third sentence today, and I'm gonna try to go on to chapter two next time, okay? But just read back over it, and then read um, the verses we just looked at, which I think is 14 through 23 or something like that. Uh, just read over them, and then I, I dare you to just to, to, to pray that prayer with Paul. Just pray, Lord God, through your mercy, would you send your spirit and open the eyes of my heart, that I would know the hope to which you have called me, uh, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power in those who believe. In other words, take the red pill. And, and, I, want to, and I, warn, I want to warn you, at, at times I, I think, and some of you know this, at times it does get terrifying. It, it gets terrifying because you realize you're, you're not in control, that he is in control. It, it's terrifying and then it sets you free because the one that's in control is absolute love. Yes, you have a stalker and he is love. And so in Jesus' name, Believe the gospel. That's, that's all I'm saying. Amen.